going to look at Acts uh, 15 this morning, or portions of Acts 15 and Acts 16, and we will be building on uh, what we looked at last week. Uh, If you were with us last week, we looked at that great controversy of whether uh, the people uh, should be circumcised and obey the law in order to be saved. And uh, the council came together, and it was a resounding no. You do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. You do not need to follow the law in order to be saved. And then they were going to deliver this announcement, this letter to the churches in Antioch and a few other churches, because uh, they wanted to rejoice with them of this news that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, not by works but by grace through faith. And this is the overflow of God's love in us that we receive with joy. Now, uh, we also mentioned that Acts 15 is really the, the, even though we've been with the Gentiles, it really is the journey into the Gentile world. And when we see the Acts or the apostles in Acts uh, delivering the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that they faced much opposition. Now, when we think of opposition, we often think of it as outside the church. And it is true, they faced much opposition from the Jews and also from the Gentiles. But what's interesting about our text today is there is also conflict or potential conflict within the church. We often think of Acts dealing with conflict outside of the church, but there is also potential conflict within the church. There are many challenges that face the church, not only from without, but also from within. And our passage, Acts chapter 15, verse 30, to chapter 16, verse 12, looks at four challenges the early church faced. Four challenges the early church faced. The first challenge was discouragement. The second, disagreement. The third, division. And the fourth, pride. Those are four challenges that still face the church today. Discouragement, disagreement, division, and pride. So we're going to ask the question this morning, how did the church navigate this difficult dilemma? How did the church navigate this difficult dilemma when these challenges faced them? And in turn, how can we learn to navigate Uh, difficult dilemmas, areas of disagreement, whatever they might be. So I am just going to put it out there this morning. This is an uncomfortable chapter because we're talking about uh, internal matters. It's easy to talk about what's going on out there and our disagreements out there, but it is another thing to have an honest gospel conversation and talk about disagreements Maybe you had a few disagreements this past week, and it was a little uncomfortable. Uh, You didn't actually want to have those conversations, but they took place, and we trust they took place and brought the relationship to a better place, because honesty with grace and love goes a long, long way in relationships. So um, I, I think that's the sense that you get in Acts 15. Um, there were some uncomfortable moments happening. And rather than run and not talk about them, uh, we sit down and we have honest conversations. 
How did the church navigate through difficult dilemmas? First, the challenge of discouragement. The challenge of discouragement, verses 30 through 35. So it'll come up on the screen, or if you have your Bibles, Acts 15, verse 30. Remember, the letter was just sent, and uh, they now received it. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, Gentile place, uh, gathering of Jews and Gentiles. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encountered the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. I told Tyler and Byron that's my new favorite verse this past week. There was a long message that was involved uh, in this. We'll get to that. Um, After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. The Gentile church was discouraged. We know the Gentile church was discouraged because if we go back to the letter, we read this. in chap- It won't come up on the screen. I'll just read it for you. Uh, in chapter 15, earlier on, verse 24, Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. That's a good definition of discouragement, isn't it? Sometimes when you find that you're discouraged, you are troubled by what others have said, and it has unsettled your hearts. So there were those who were unauthorized, and they were speaking these things like, you must be circumcised in order to be saved, you must obey the law in order to be saved, and it unsettled them. In fact, it discouraged them. And so part of the purpose of what was taking place when they delivered the letters is they knew that the Gentile church needed discouragement. Can you imagine if they hadn't come to that conclusion in Acts 15 and then the, the discouragement would become more widespread? And like we read in Peter, he says, we're not going to load the people down. And, and so uh, they recognize that there's discouragement in the church. And I think that's, that's important to understand that we can acknowledge and maybe especially going through this last difficult year and a half, two years, or maybe personal things that you're going through, There can be many who gather who come and they're just discouraged. And that's part of the beautiful thing that happens about the letter is because they acknowledge their discouragement. We are allowed to acknowledge discouragement in the church. That there are those who come who find it difficult to be here because of their discouragement in their life and they're wondering if God is present. And maybe you come this morning and are discouraged. And sometimes churches... Broadly speaking, the family can be a discouraged place because of everything they're going through. But as we read in uh, verse 31, something turned them from discouragement to encouragement. So when they received that letter, there was something in the letter that encouraged them. So verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So how did they turn from discouragement to encouragement? And that goes back to the question that we asked at the beginning. How did the church navigate through this difficult dilemma? Now we're going to look at five ways, five moments, just briefly, five moments of encouragement in this passage. First of all, if we were to go back uh, to the letter, we would read 
uh, in the letter, it included this. We have unan- after they recognized the discouragement, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first place of encouragement for the church was the church in Jerusalem spoke well of Paul and Barnabas and said, you have leaders who love you. You have leaders who care for you. They have risked their lives. They spend their lives in the gospel for your sake. And God has provided elders and deacons and other leaders, ministry leaders in your life who love you and who care for you and who spend their time, spend their lives uh, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of God and for your sake. They knew that they were loved within the church. Because remember, Paul and Barnabas had gone to Jerusalem and said, uh, well, here's the big debate. Do you need to be saved by works? Um, And Paul and Barnabas went there in love for the sake of the church. The leaders were for the people. That's the first place of encouragement, that you are loved by your leaders. Second place of encouragement is they affirm the gospel. We will see this as we go through the book of Acts. They just kept on coming back to the gospel. They just kept on coming back to the gospel. So what do we read? They said, this is what we decided by the Holy Spirit and us, uh, not to further burden you. And then they talk about salvation, and then they talk about repentance. Salvation, repentance, salvation, repentance, salvation, repentance. That becomes the theme, that becomes the pattern through the book of Acts. So the first place of encouragement is you are loved by the church. The second place of encouragement is, comes from a clear understanding of the gospel. And then notice how it ends in verse, uh, verse 29. It says, you will do well if you keep yourself from these things. Farewell. That's the ending of the letter. You will do well if you keep these things. How do you know if you're doing well in the Christian life? It's an interesting question, right? That's what discouragement says. Discouragement says you're not doing well. Things are not going well, or or you begin to convince yourself that somehow it's not Christ alone, but it's all this other stuff, and I need to be doing something in order to secure my salvation rather than living out my salvation because of what Christ has done for me. And so it's a powerful ending to a letter. Maybe some of you in the last number of months have not heard from anybody about how well you're doing. In fact, they've been telling you how well you've not been doing. And you just grow in discouragement. The end of this letter says, you will do well. You will do well if you look to Jesus to know that he is your salvation, that he has paid the penalty in full, that he has suffered for you, that he lives for you and for his people to the glory of his Father's name so that your place is secure in Christ and flowing out of that relationship with Christ comes a life of repentance, a life of humility, a life of saying, God, I'm a bit of a mess going on right now um, in my life and I think I'd hear from you it's not well, but you actually say it is well. Because a life of faith and a life of repentance is a life well lived. Maybe for some who are discouraged, it's okay to hear from God, it is well. It is well with your soul. Because it is well doesn't mean that we have it all together. It is well means that our eyes are on Christ, 
and that our feet are moving towards repentance so that we grow in faith and we grow in holiness because of God's love that he placed on us. So you can imagine how much encouragement has come at this time. They're loved by the leaders. The gospel, the clear gospel is affirmed. You will do well if you keep yourself from these things. And then we read uh, in verse 32, um, after he says they were encouraged, both Judas, again, my favorite, my new favorite verse, both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. So you're probably thinking, oh, no, he's going to preach a long message. Actually, I could apply it that way, but I won't. Um, I think basically what it's saying, why is it a long message? Because it takes time to work out of discouragement. Doesn't it? If you're like me, it's not like somebody, we talk about this, it's not like somebody says, turn the frown upside down, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, I have lots to be happy for. They, they needed a long message. They needed somebody to spend time with them and just remind them of the goodness of God. They needed someone to come alongside of them and say, you know, a life of repentance is a, is a, is a good life. It's when we start boasting about the law all the time. We've kept the law, we've kept the law, we've kept the law, as if that's Christianity. Knowing that Christ is in us and that he gives us strength to live differently. And there are those who will travel long. With, they will have long messages life, um, not because it all happens at one time, but because they spend that time with you. If you're discouraged, it's not that you come out of discourage immediately, but knowing that you're loved, a clear gospel, knowing what is well, and who, that God determines what is well, not others, um, there can be encouragement as you walk with others or others walk with you. And then finally, and I actually think this is probably the most helpful part of encouragement, is found in verse uh, 35, the very last verse. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch teaching and proclaiming the word of God. If you're discouraged, go to the word of God. If we just look, and that's, I'm not trying to make it sound simple, but if we just look at the last little bit of what we've been learning in the book of Acts, listen to this. We just went back to last week's message from, from um, James and Peter and these guys. Notice in Acts 15, Peter's message, we looked four things. God took the initiative to save you. God changes your heart. God cleanses your heart. And you are saved by the gift of God. You are saved by his strength, by his gift, by his love. There was so much gospel in Acts 15, so, much, so many places to be encouraged. You say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved. And we go back to our story, just like they tried to go back to their story in, in Acts. And, and Peter comes along and he says, don't go back to your story. Go back to God's story. He took the initiative. He hasn't left you. He changes you. He has cleansed you at the cross of Christ. We have places of encouragement to be thankful for. And then if we were to go a little bit further, remember James quoted from Amos 9. What did we read in Amos 9? We read at minimum that we read, and I'll just read a portion of it, Jesus came to rebuild its ruins and set it up again. How many people, that's discouragement, right? You come before God in your ruins. You come before God as if you have nothing, as if your life is just falling apart. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came to rebuild the ruins. 
He came to take your old life. He came to transform you, to cleanse you, to give, you the, the, to give the Holy Spirit to you so that you are set free to live for him. He is rebuilding you. And so you come to God, and that's part of what repentance is. God, I need to be rebuilt. This week was awful. I didn't even feel like coming to church. I didn't feel like participating in the Lord's Supper because if you knew my, if you knew my heart, um, it's just a mess. And Jesus comes and he says, the reason I came was to rebuild what was ruined and to build it up, to take what was broken and it, we read and to set it up again. And we could go back, and this is a lot, we could go back one, we, we actually go back to Barnabas because Barnabas didn't speak in Acts 15. But Barnabas, interestingly, was referenced in Acts 11, verses 23 through 24. Listen to what Barnabas said about Barnabas. When we arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Paul, Barnabas was in part of his life where he could have seen the mess that the church was in. What did Barnabas see? Why was Barnabas such an encourager? Because he saw the grace of God. If I talk to discouraged people, it's because they see the ruins and they see what they're not doing. Part of encouragement is the Barnabas moment where he looked at the church and he didn't see all the issues. He saw the work of God. You see, we need to do this with our children, with our young people. Sometimes we see everything that's going on and we say, God, you just need to fix them. You need to transform them. But Barnabas comes along and he says, I need to notice the grace moments. What is God doing in their life? And it might not be exactly how I would want it done, but what is the work of God in their lives? And that's why he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Notice he did not encourage them to get their life right all the time. He says, keep going, be devoted, don't give up. Do you see the grace of God in the church's life despite the disagreements and some of the divisions? That God is at work. Do you see that in your spouse? Do you see that in your children? Do you see that even in the world in which we're living? That God's grace still exists. God's mercy still reign because Jesus sits on the throne. And so what do we do? We, like Barnabas, say, I want to see grace. It's not to live in an unreal world, it's, but it's, to, it's a beginning place. The beginning place is grace. And then it's say, how can I help others be devoted to not give up? So if you're here and you say, I feel like giving up, there's God's grace. Don't give up. Remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. If that is the challenge of discouragement, here's the challenge of disagreement. Here's the challenge of disagreement. We read um, in verses 36 through 41, after some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man 
couldn't even say his name, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. After being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord, he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Why, why did they do all of this? It was for the strengthening of the churches. But what happened in these verses? We have the challenge of disagreement. The challenge of disagreement. Here's what's interesting. Paul did not want Mark along with him because Mark had abandoned them and deserted his post. He, we read in the passage, it says, not gone on with them to the work. They counted him, uh, or they counted on him to be there, and he abandoned them. He gave up. He walked away. And so Paul's saying, I'm having none of it. And Barnabas is saying, you got to have some of it. And Paul's saying, I'm having none of it. And so what do we read? They had such a sharp disagreement. That is a strong Greek word. You go back to the Greek, it is a strong, strong word. It mean, this was not just a minor, you know, um, we're not, we don't seem to be getting along here. This is a major disagreement. The words used to describe this word are anger. Um, They were irritated with one another. They were exasperated. Uh, They provoked one another. You know those moments in our life when things are not going well, you know what to say? And provoking goes on. It's, it's really, it's also in the Old Testament where God's provoked to anger. It's just, it's such a, a strong feeling that's what's going on. That's why we're talking about this is not a comfortable passage. We can read it and say, oh, it's early church. But we are prone to discouragement and we are prone to division and we are prone to disagreement. So how did the church navigate this difficult dilemma? How did the church navigate this difficult dilemma? We're going to look at two things. First of all, they parted company. That's how they navigated it. Paul and Barnabas actually separated. But we say to ourselves, well, they're apostles. Of course they don't separate. These men of God, shouldn't they be able to figure everything out? This is the early church. They had the Holy Spirit. They were called to unity. The Holy Spirit brings unity. Shouldn't everything work out great? Shouldn't there always be unity? Some people sometimes say, well, maybe more than sometimes, but sometimes people say, you know, I've been hurt by the church. And I don't often say it, but we'll say it this morning since we're really good friends and having a really good conversation here. Um, my, My initial thought is, why are you surprised? Is that a shock? God takes sinners and is working in them. And so when we gather, we're not, we're not like, how, how are you doing, everybody? Great day? I've, I've had a mountaintop experience week, every week. And I love you so much that I would never... Why would we think that there wouldn't be hurt in the church? It's like saying if you have a Christian marriage... There'd never be an argument. We can just say this, that there's an 
reality check that goes on that not everything is great in the church and damage can be done, and that's sad. And maybe that's what this pandemic is teaching us a little bit more, um, that it's okay to weep for the church rather than to pretend that things are, you know, never going to go wrong. And we actually have to work through disagreements. Now, it is interesting because in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, it talked about Paul respecting Barnabas, and in Philemon 24, it talks about reconciliation with um, Mark. And so with this, I also want to give a word of caution. Um, I grew up in a church where there was lots of division. It seemed like there was division all the time. It just happened. And you know what happens 10 or 15 or 20 years later? We meet up with these people, and it's like everything's okay because everything pretty much is okay. And you look back 20 years earlier and you say, we divided over that? That's what, that's what we divided over. We just wasted 10 years because we did that. So this also gives pause to be able to say, is this worth dividing? Is this worth pursuing the disagreement? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It takes wisdom. This is the last thing I want to say about that, and then we come to um, the challenge of potential division, is interestingly, Barnabas gave Mark a ministry. Some of you might feel like you're Mark, right? Like you gave up a long time ago, and you have no place to serve God anymore. You know, you're gonna, this is how Mark is remembered in Scripture. How would you like that written for, you know, for everybody to read about your life? But you know what Barnabas, the encourager, the guy who saw grace in other people's lives and encouraged them to devote themselves, you know what he did? This is what he did. He took Barnabas, Barnabas took Paul with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Barnabas and Mark were cousins. They grew up around the Cyprus area. Do you know what Barnabas did for Mark? Barnabas took Mark to a place where he would thrive in ministry. He didn't take him to a place way off somewhere where he had the potential to, to abandon the group again. There are places where you can thrive in ministry. It may not be that place. It may not be that place. It might not be the trip that Paul wanted to plan. But there are places. So you know what Paul, Bar Barnabas did? Uh, he said to Mark, we're going to stay close to home. We're going to stay close to home. And not only will we stay close to home, it will be less dangerous, and it, therefore it will be less demanding. Barnabas acknowledged Mark could not meet the demands of Paul's trip, but that did not mean Mark did not have a ministry. Okay? So, if you're discouraged, there's places of encouragement. If there has been disagreement and you sense that you're like the Mark who you abandon things and you say, God, I've been off the radar for so long and I can't be like those other people. You don't have to be like those other people. There may be ministries closer to home that suit you more than other ministries that people would expect from you. So you can be back in the game. Devoting yourself to the Lord and serving others. Okay, here's the third one. Uh, challenge of divisions. The challenge of division. This one was real in uh, verses 1 through 5. And this is where um, we might become a little uncomfortable uh, as we work through this because could you imagine watching Paul and Barnabas fight? You're sitting in the room and Paul and Barnabas are not agreeing. And it's like, oh, this is a, this is a little awkward. Or in this passage, we're going to read 
um, Paul agreeing to circumcise Timothy. And you might say, yeah, I'm not there. I don't think Paul should have done that. Now, we think he should have done it because it's in the Word, but when you're in that moment, you're like, Paul, are you really saying that Timothy should be circumcised? So let's read those verses. Acts 16, 1, Paul went to Derbe and Lystra, uh, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters of Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. Okay, so what was taking place in this? How did the church, and I'm going to try and stick to my notes here, how, did the church, how does the church navigate when the gospel has the potential to become a side issue? Okay, that's what we're going to be talking about. How does the church navigate when the gospel has the potential to become a side issue? If we were to go back to Acts 15, we would read um, that one did not need to be circumcised for salvation. Do not be circumcised because of, uh, for salvation. We could go to the book of Galatians, and we could read that Paul says to Titus, Titus, do not become circumcised because it became a gospel issue. So in two places we read, and others, do not be circumcised, do not be circumcised. And then all of a sudden we meet up with Paul in Acts 16, and he says, yes, be circumcised. And we're like, Paul, you just spent all that effort in Acts 15. You went to Jerusalem, and you had this big council and this big debate, and they decided, no, do not be circumcised. Do you know how much you're compromising? Do you know how much you're giving up? Because this could be perceived as something. Or all of a sudden, now the Jews think, uh, who believe that, the Jews think, well, maybe it's back to what it was, that in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. How did the church navigate this difficult dilemma. Here it is. Christians living or Christian living may not be as clear and neat and tidy as we would like it. Christian living may not be as clear, as neat and tidy as we would like it. The main point that Paul is making is Paul is determined neither Timothy nor secondary issues would be the focus. Paul is determined that neither Timothy or secondary issues would be the focus. Could you imagine um, Timothy, who had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, uh, go and do ministry among the Jews? What would the topic be? The topic would no longer be about Jesus Christ. The topic would be about, Timothy, why are you not circumcised? So in order to keep the gospel focus, Paul said, Timothy, be circumcised. In order to love the Jews, become circumcised. When it came to love and unity among God's people, living out the gospel among the Jews, Paul said yes to circumcision. And that's why we read, we won't read it, but in verses 4 and 5, we read um, that they delivered the letter. The letter, as we saw, had a gospel focus, and that's why they were strengthened in their faith, because it didn't 
They didn't go to side issues. They kept, on the, they kept their focus on Jesus. The moment we get to side issues and side issues become the main issue is the moment the church is weakened and vulnerable. Imagine how uncomfortable that discussion was in the early church. I was reading a commentary, and these were some of the points. Paul was culturally sensitive. He listened to the culture, and yet he did not compromise. That's very important. He became, in a sense, part of the culture, and yet he did not compromise. He did not stand before the Jews and say, I'm going to make a point, and I'm going to stand against your culture and not compromise. Compromise may not be the best word, but what might appear to be compromising. Paul permitted circumcision so the gospel would remain central. He never compromised the gospel. And then this, knowing which principles are worth standing up for and which ideas are not worth elevating to an importance they do not deserve is a sign of discernment, maturity, and leadership. Knowing which principles are worth standing up for and which ideas are not worth elevating to an importance they do not deserve is a sign of discernment, maturity, and leadership. Not every issue is worth starting a war over when it comes to the gospel and the ethnic unity of the church, or we could say the unity of the church. Not every issue is worth starting a war over when it comes to the gospel and the unity of the church. That's why this passage becomes so uncomfortable. How do we navigate when the gospel has the potential to become a side issue? How does the church today navigate when the gospel has the potential to become a side issue? Two major issues that are happening in the churches now are one, mass, and the other, music. How do we navigate mass? Or we could extend that to other viewpoints of how to work through the pandemic. Do we even dare have that conversation? How do we talk about music? Do we even dare have that conversation? These are the type of conversations that are going on in Acts 14, or 15 and 16. For example, if we were to address mass, at grace, the elders have taken the position to follow government guidelines which require wearing a mask in our building during our services except for health exemptions. Why? And here is the struggle. There are some churches who have said we do not need to wear a mask in order to stand for truth and to stand against the tide of cultural darkness. There are some vocal churches who have said that they do not need to wear a mask in order to stand for, uh, so that they can stand for truth and to stand against the tide of cultural darkness. And the result of that, I feel, in many ways, has made many feel guilty for not standing the exact same way they have been asked to stand or heard that they should stand, and somehow, therefore, feel like they're compromising the gospel if they don't stand exactly as other churches or other people tell them to stand. But gospel maturity and gospel living is not always taking a stand on every issue. Gospel maturity and gospel living is not always taking a stand on every issue. Maturity is knowing when to take a stand and when an issue is not a gospel issue. 
For example, if we were to do this as parents and we were to take the, the, the um, passage where children obey your parents, if we demanded of our children that they obey us every single time, we would exasperate them. So there are times as parents where you let things go. It's okay. Let it go. Um, and you relax a little bit. You're not taking a stand on every issue because you as a parent know when you need to take a stand and when you don't need to take a stand. When Peter stood against Bar uh, Barnabas, we could say, well, see, that's what Christianity is all about. It's taking a stand. So when we hear other churches say, if you wear a mask, then you're not taking a stand. Or if we listen to tradition, if you do this and you're not taking a stand, then you're somehow compromising. And it loads people down and it divides the church. Sometimes taking a stand in Christianity is loving the other person and knowing that you can love them and truth is not, and the gospel is not ultimately compromised. God teaches us living out our faith takes discernment and maturity to when and how we take a stand. Is every stand necessary because a few vocal voices say it is necessary to stand against the cultural freedom this way? Our position over the last months has been rather simple, actually. It's kind of embarrassingly simple. Wearing masks at this time is an opportunity to show Galatians 5 freedom to love one another so the gospel remains central. Wearing masks at this time is an opportunity to show Galatians 5 freedom to love one another so the gospel remains central. We hold not every issue needs to be a declaration of war on the culture. Wearing of masks does not need to be seen as an attack against the freedom of the church, as some have suggested, and instead, we can, in other far more effective ways, live and serve one another. We could ask the question, what then is a culturally appropriate stand? There are so many culturally appropriate stands. What if the church practiced hospitality? What if that was the discussion? What if we bound our conscience to invite into our lives those who are lonely and isolated, overwhelmed by the cultural tide of darkness, to listen to their story, to find grace in them, to care for them, pointing them to their shepherd, our shepherd. We know that hospitality is a biblical foundation. It's like 1 Corinthians 13. I can have all the right answers. I can have all knowledge. But if I do not have love, I have nothing and I give nothing. Now I understand, because this is a difficult conversation, that we may not agree with one another. But we may agree that we unite in the gospel to stand in unity for the sake of the gospel. And the greatest rebellion that we can do does not happen politically or mass or whatever else people may be saying. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most offensive thing in our culture. So we may not agree, but I trust we can unite in the gospel to stand in unity. Some may hear this as further proof that we do not preach the whole gospel or we continue to compromise or we do not notice what's taking outside taking place outside the walls of this church, or that we do not love you in our differences and you are not welcome. Please hear from us. That is not what we're saying. 
We are sad that this has become such an issue because we welcome one another in our differences and we love one another in the name of Christ because of the gospel. We know that there is so much to divide, especially in a time when emotions are so heightened or the rhetoric is so divisive. We welcome you in our differences, and yet in a cultural matter for the sake of unity, we can submit to leadership because some matters are not worth starting a war over. Paul loved the Jews as a Jew so that the focus did not become Timothy and circumcision. He did not start a war over circumcision so as not to, as not to cause division. We could say the same thing is about music, right? Music can also be divisive. Our music ministry not only takes the style of music, but the words being sung very seriously. Our goal is we will have a mixed, uh, mix of uh, traditional and new songs and hymns, which will be firmly planted in Scripture by God's grace and gospel truth to glorify God. Our greatest instrument are not instruments, but our hearts that overflow to sing to the glory of God. Our musicians are not performers, but servants serving you so you can express your hearts and voice. And then our final principle of uh, music is we are equal opportunity offenders. That may not seem obvious to you, but we will offend you with our music. At some point, we will offend people with how we do music. But do we make music the issue? Is every issue worth starting a war over? Or can we sing? And when I'm uncomfortable singing maybe a particular song, I see someone next to me singing their lungs out, and I'm reminded I'm part of a larger family. And thank God that person can sing. And then I'm singing, and someone else isn't singing. And what it does is it reminds us in our individualistic age that we can unite on issues where we do not need to make it an issue. We sometimes get asked the question, why, we're just, we'll just head right into it. Why do we sing Bethel and Hillsong songs? I, there's an hour, I just noticed, an, I went and looked at it, there's an hour thing on why we do not, a church, why an hour video on why we, do, why we don't do this. Why do we do this? Because we live within the parameters of our music ministry. Um, and we do not live in fear we live by faith knowing that even though we differ significantly, significantly on some of their theology, that if their words are biblical, that God would keep his people by his spirit because the larger ministry by God's spirit is one of unity and one uh, where we are able to sing to the praise and the glory of his name. Now, we could talk about all sorts of other things. Doctrine can divide um, what people wear, don't wear, can divide. What version you use, whether you divide or not divide. All of these other things. Um, and the question is, not every issue is as clear as we make it out to be. So if you hear people saying, we don't do this or don't do that, otherwise you compromise, then take a sober second thought. A sober second thought and to say, am I going to start, is this we, I, we hear families being divided with one another. Is this going to divide families? This? Because someone has told us if you don't do that, then you're compromising somehow or you're not preaching the full gospel. 
Really? I ask the question, where will we be in five years from now? And are the battles that we're working through now, is it okay to step back and breathe and say, it doesn't go my way? There are things in church that I, don't, I mean, I struggle with. We all struggle together. But five years from now, we still, we're still singing together by God's grace. And we didn't start unnecessary wars along the way for the sake of the gospel. Because when there's unnecessary wars, the church is weakened. It's weakened. And we don't have the strength to go out and share the gospel. We don't have the strength for hospitality. We don't have the strength to uphold the person of Christ. I'm going to close with this because we just need these um, verses. Because you may say, oh, I'm so discouraged. Because the church, I thought the church was this great place with all these great people and everybody got along because uh, the blessings of God have been poured out upon the church and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And now you've just dashed my dreams and they are no more. Um, But listen to verses 6 through 10. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you know, it's amazing how the, the sections are interconnected. Encouragement, um, then disagreement. Well, we always have to make a stand. Well, no, Paul has Timothy circumcised, so it takes wisdom on know, knowing where to stand. And then you get this discouragement back in the church. And what do we read in verses 6 through 10? The Holy Spirit leads his church. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, no, do you, don't go there. Don't go there. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, I'm not sending you there. And then all of a sudden you'll hear a Macedonian man who says, can you come over? And the church goes over. And because the church hasn't been weakened on side issues, the church has strength to to heed the call of a Macedonian man. And so they go over to him and uh, just in order to preach the gospel. So here's the encouragement as we leave uh, in verses 6 through 10. Yes, the church can be messy. Yes, we live with our disagreements. Yes, there is the high potential for division over secondary issues. All of that is part of the church. And if you are a new believer and you have not expected that, I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news for you. That is just life within the church. But here's the other part of the story. The Holy Spirit leads and the Holy Spirit guides and the Holy Spirit sends you places in order for you to have ministry among his people so that you do not grow tired and weary in doing good, but it also gives you an opportunity to spread you out and spread us out as we are enthused for Jesus 
because he's the gospel. So we speak more about Jesus with others, telling them that there is saving grace. And like we read of the thief on the cross, that we do not have to pay for our own sins. That is Jesus who has done that for us. And flowing out of this place comes the gospel because we are strengthened in our faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust by grace and with grace we hear these words. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the wisdom that we find in Scripture. We need it. We need to know some of the challenges of the early church. And we need to know that uh, they had to work through things just as we have to work through things. And by your spirit, you can lead us to unity. We thank you for the unity that you do give us. I thank you for the grace given uh, over these past two years and, and even longer with some of the challenges of moving into a new building, that your people have been so generous. They have been, there has been unity, and we give you thanks for that. But Lord, when there are many voices around us saying, take a stand here and take a stand there, Lord, lead us by your spirit as a church and as individuals that the gospel may remain central and therefore the light of Christ might shine because our world is desperate for it and marriages are desperate for it and families and young people and children are desperate for the gospel. So Lord, to the glory and honor of your name, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.